Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Red Inca. I'm Jared Kimber. This episode of Red Inca is about how cricket history has been covered. For that, we got on one of the great modern historians of our game. Yeah, I'm uh, Arun or Arunabha Sengupta to give my full name and I'm a cricket writer. My latest book being Elephant in the Stadium. We talk about India's win over England in 1971 history in multiple languages, when great tours weren't covered at all, what stories should be told, how old cricket writing stretches the truth, and why the scoreboard wasn't an ass. Let's start with your latest book, Elephant in the Stadium. Uh, what, what sort of inspired this? Because it's, it's a story that's been told a little bit, but I would say that from my perspective as a historian, when I go back, there's maybe not as much information out there as I would like there to be on what is such an important moment in, well, now in international cricket rather than just Indian cricket. Mm-hmm. So uh, there were several factors here that uh, growing up, we never heard the end of this particular triumph in at the Oval because it was the pioneering triumph. And also uh, whenever we had later victories, and I'm talking about the 80s, when India beat England 2-0 in England. And that was a much more clinical victory when you go back to the scorecards. Uh, we were always told that um, that particular victory in 71, that was the like epitome. You couldn't better that. And that was when uh, Indians defeated England in England and West Indies in West Indies and all that. So uh, there was always the fascination for that series, and I wanted to dig deeper into it. Um, as well as something else played into my uh, like uh, motivation. That is, as you can understand, you and I, we look at facts and figures, and that always varies a lot from the fables mm. that we hear. So uh, something that we kept on hearing is that our spinners at that time were the best spinners who won the test matches on uh, seeming tracks, turned them square on seeming tracks. And when I looked at the match records and the reports of contemporary reports of that time, that's not quite the case. Um, India were outplayed in the, on the seeming wickets of Manchester and also they got really turning tracks at the mm-hmm. Oval and also at Lords. So if we look at the contemporary records of those days, we find that. And uh, that was also something that I wanted to bring into light, like you write history mm-hmm. properly if you have to write it. And thirdly, uh, there was also the 
social implication that is uh, india was just 24 years into independence and what it meant to people why do we have such a lot of uh, mythology crafted around that particular win uh, we have to understand a lot of things for that uh, for example when india went in 1967 they were paid a princely allowance of 1 pound per day you know the cricketers so a lot of them could not afford uh, to buy uh, pullovers or jumpers to get, go into the field and uh, they had to cut down on their uh, meals to afford the sweaters and uh, they were on the back foot even before the england bowlers ran to bowl to them you know so and um, india was not taken very seriously on the global platform uh, from the political point of view from the entertainment point of view nowhere they were taken seriously uh, after independence they had played 19 test matches in england 19 test matches in england after independence they had lost 18 and they would have lost the other one as well uh, unless it had rained so when they went in 1971 on the first day of the tour that is the first match they played against middlesex at lords there was not one single article in the papers that told people that they are actually this is a touring side about player test match or about player mm. tour match no so there was only one line announcement that cricket today india versus middlesex from 1130 or something like that and nothing else was reported so they were not taken seriously at all the previous tours they were taken a bit seriously because it was mansur ali khan pataudi or the nawab of pataudi who was leading india and that uh, princely connections that had uh, some sort of fascination for the uh, english uh, mm. public also the english press but uh, i'm not even talking about ashes like 1968 when australia toured england gabby allen was writing uh, like uh, features and uh, arlet was like writing features so it was uh, like a completely different story but uh, even that summer 1971 pakistan had traveled before india and even their visit was much more better covered because they had at least won something in england before that and finally uh, the final reason is that that was a very pivotal moment in the history of india and pakistan and the birth of bangladesh in the same year 1971 the two countries were about to go to war and they were sharing that uh, summer in england which was uh, quite a moment like uh, there were uh, there is a lot of politics there is a lot of history uh, social history political history that is woven into the book i talk about the tour in general but also all the matches and in between how uh, the indo british relationship through the ages up to independence after independence up to 1971 and what happened after that when the power uh, dynamics shifted totally with the current generation with ipl and so on so everything goes into the book and um, it's it's an interesting series because it's not like india is dominating or anything in, in that particular series as you said the the, the one in you know in the 80s is a month, i think you used the word clinical like that was just a normal test win right this one this one has a bit more um i don't know if you heard the, the series that me and abhishek did on you know the teams who first beat england uh oh sorry teams when they first beat england there, there's a bit more of there was always two two stories somewhere just right place right time this one felt a little bit right place right time the interesting thing of course there is you talk about the pitches 
we know that on occasion you can get pitches that help um, in in spinning conditions in England. Certainly a lot more back then because you're looking at that sort of that era where there were still a lot of very good English spinners coming through and everything else. But it doesn't really matter how you beat England for that first time in England. It kind of matters that you meet you beat England and it comes you know there are other things you haven't talked about there like when the Indian batters who were very well respected in India and very well respected when playing in in Asian conditions would come to England and they would see fast bowling that suddenly they they would be written off as a joke you would have the odd player um who was very well respected because obviously even players who were born in India had played for England at that point. So it wasn't that no one thought Indians couldn't play. But the collective of Indian cricket wasn't really thought to be up to the rigors of test match cricket, right? So this is, it's an important thing from the way it changes the narrative on on Indian cricket within England. It also changes the narrative a little bit back home when it comes to India. And it is it's the step towards what happens in 1983, which is the step towards what's happened, what, what Indian cricket is today, right? Well, every, every, all those big moments on the way there are the reason that Indian cricket is in the position it's in today. Yeah, I mean, uh, these all played their roles and this was a pivotal moment because uh, that was the first time that India was taken seriously on the world stage, I could say. And um, yeah, a lot of other circumstantial things happened uh, during the 90s, like the South African tour, which uh, led to the satellite TV going out in a big way and uh, the population of India playing a huge role in that that uh, cricket was uh, beamed into all the smaller towns villages and that played a huge role but uh, all started with this uh, 1971 tour when uh, people didn't expect India to win people didn't expect India to do uh, well at all uh, even when they had beaten West Indies in West Indies uh, just before the tour when they traveled to England there was a kind of a ceremony that is uh, that was hosted by Sports Week, and um, in that, different uh, former cricketers were asked for their predictions how India would do in England, and even the even they didn't give India much of a chance. The best they got was fifty fifty, but uh, most of them was eighty twenty in favor of England, sixty forty in favor of England. Even though India had just beaten West Indies, and England were. Uh, holding the Ashes. They had just won the Ashes in 1971, uh, Illingworth's team. So they were like uh, considered quite unbeatable, especially in England, where India had never won anything. And as you said, uh, 86, it was definitely much more clinical. It was a 2-0 victory, and India dominated the entire series. 71, the first test at Lords could have gone either way. Uh, it was a small target, and because of the rains, India chased quickly and uh, lost a lot of wickets. And in the end, they were eight down with uh, some runs to get. And one of the remaining batsmen was Chandrasekhar, who was not really that good with the bat. That's an understatement, um, but yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, then the, the second one, the second test at Manchester, they were outplayed. They were totally outplayed, and they would have lost heavily, um, only there was rain on the last day. And uh, so it was drawn. Final test, England had the upper hand till about midday on the fourth day. And they had a big first wings lead when Chandrasekhar, who did not have that good a series till till then, till that time, he turned the tables with a spell that has gone down as one of the best spells of the 20th century, uh, 6 for 36. 
and that really turned the tables and there was a battle of attrition on the final day and India's uh, made heavy weather of the small target but they still uh, like got home by four wickets so it was not really that convincing a win but when they came back they had beaten England they had beaten West Indies and so uh, with time this became one of the victories that was uh, written in the stars. They were impregnable team. They were invincibles and so on, which is understandable, which is understandable given the condition of uh, India at that time, given the way uh, they were just an emerging nation and also they were going to war. Mm. You know, nothing really uh, raises the jingoism than a war in the country. So all this and the government also, Indira Gandhi's government also capitalized on this victory to somewhat to for it to act as an unifying uh, force. It's not, so not like, all this it's not like politicians to take someone else's sporting um, triumph uh, and uh, and use it for their own myth. It's, <laughs> it's never happened before and it'll never happen again. Um it's interesting because, you you know, there's obviously the West Indies series as well. And this kind of leads me into what I want to talk about a little bit. One of the series I would love to know, I'd love to watch and uh, know a lot more about is when West Indies played Pakistan and there were two triple hundreds and, you know, the world record, probably the longest innings we'll ever have in test cricket. And then, you know, one of that, well, one of the early great innings that we will have in test cricket and the world record at that time. There's almost nothing about that series. It was very poorly covered from both sides. West, as you know, West Indies cricket, the journalists didn't often travel. So they would see the game in their own place, but they wouldn't really see the game anywhere else. In those days, in the early days of Pakistan cricket, that was before the PCB even sent people on the road um, to be able to do that. At least, at least in the other era, they would pay the journalists to travel. That wasn't really the case then. Mm -hmm. you, there's, there's a little bit. Oh, I mean, there's quite a bit, although, as you said, it was it was ignored um, at times, the India-England series. The India-West Indies series, from a historian point of view, how much is there to really delve through um, and, and take a look at? I, I would assume there wouldn't be much video footage, if any cinematic footage of that at all. You would probably get newspapers at each individual location that might have covered it, but it, it would have been a lot of wire pieces that were probably repeated over and over again. There wouldn't be that much about the yeah. India-West Indies um, tour unless there is stuff written in the books of the players who were playing. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Wait, are you gaming on a Chromebook? Yep. Yeah. It's got a high-res 120 hertz display, plus this killer RGB keyboard. And I can access thousands of games anytime, anywhere. Stop playing. What? Get out of here. Huh? Yeah, I want you to stop playing and get out of here so I can game on that Chromebook. Got it. <laughs> Discover the ultimate cloud gaming machine, a new kind of Chromebook. Yeah. Uh, before I answer about the 1971 India-West Indies series, let me go back to a contrast, which will tell you the, about the contrast in cricket reportage. Uh, 1952-53, India went to West Indies for mm -hmm. the first time. And it was the meeting of people because uh, there were a lot of endangered laborers who had gone to West Indies from India. 
uh, right in the 1800s, 1860s, and they were seeing their own people coming and playing there for the first time. So there was a huge amount of excitement. There was a lot of Indian players who were extremely popular. It was a five-test series. They played brilliantly, and it was a 1-0 win for the West Indians. And uh, that series has nothing written about it. There's absolutely nothing written about it. Um, six months later, uh, or less than that, a few months later, Australia, Lindsay Hassett's Australia, came to England to play the 1953 Ashes. And that was the coronation Ashes because the previous coronation took place in 1953. And because of the coronation, there was a huge amount of excitement. Everything that uh, was going on was like bloated out of proportion. It was a five-test series, 1-0 victory in favor of England. The same result, the same scoreline. And there are 11 books written about that Ashes series. <laughs> There are, 11, books, no, written about there are 11 Ashes. books written about it so far. While we're doing this podcast, two more may be written. Yes, of course. Of course. There is always that possibility, <laughs> especially given the age of the people who write cricket books nowadays. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, you know, so 11 books already written and more on the way, probably. And uh, that was also a five-test series which ended 1-0. And... Uh, because of all the hype, it has gone down as an excellent series, very, very exciting series. It was not that. If you look at the scorecards, uh, people, I don't think they really enjoyed seeing Trevor Bailey block every ball, appeal for the light at the at mid midday under the midday sun to like uh, so that the last over before lunch was not bowled, and then bowl down the leg side to ensure a draw. So it was not really a great series, but uh, it has gone down as a great series because that's how the narrative has changed. So you see the skew in reporting. So similarly, 1971 also when India went to West Indies, there is a lot of there are a lot of stories that we hear, but this this is again narrative based or anecdotal stories, anecdotal stories that uh, Salim Durrani he gave the idea to Wadekar that uh, sorry this. Uh, um, uh, who was it who gave the idea to Wadika to bring Durani in, Durani on, and uh, he dismissed uh, Sobers and uh, Lloyd in quick su succession in the victory test, uh, the test that India won there. And uh, what happens when there is not a proper, um, like, uh, proper reference books or reference articles, then the conception of history is a bit skewed. So we know that in 1970s, West Indies developed a great bowling attack. So all the fast bowlers came one after the other. In the 1960s, they had Holland Griffith and to some extent Gilchrist. And in the 1970s, Roberts, Holding, uh, Garner, Marshall, all of them evolved uh, this craft and so on. So when people say Gavaskar scored 774 runs in his first series, a lot of them mix it up with the great pace bowling attack that he faced and scored all those runs. Actually, it was a very weak mm. attack. Like, West Indies, from 1966 onwards, they had never won a series at home and uh, till 1973. So, um, they were going through a barren patch. Yeah, their best players had was, kind of aged, their best batters had aged out. They had, um, yes. uh, they had the off-spinner. Why have I forgotten his name? Lance Gibbs. Lance Gibbs, but he also was out of form yeah. and actually Noriga played for West Indies in exactly. the series. Exactly. So, two, they, and, 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 and Griffiths didn't play no, Hall and Griffiths. Yeah, so Hall and Griffiths, like, I'm yeah, trying to remember if they both retired. It, it, and it, those sorts of narratives, I find it really, really interesting. And I think sometimes in cricket writing, because it was more poetic than boxing writing and horse racing writing and the other early yeah. forms of writing, 
there was there was a feeling that you could get away with a little bit more. So Cardis is a perfect example of someone that was, you Absolutely. know, was it? I, I think it was the Aubrey Faulkner game that he suddenly had all these details on, um, and you know, probably wasn't there, right? Uh, you know, when when Aubrey Faulkner made the runs against the Australians in in that late game when he was thirty nine or forty two or whatever, however old he was, and there's a lot of stories about that. And even if you go back, I was thinking about this today, and you'll remember the name. I've forgotten the name of it. the The first book that was that that was kind of a cricket history book was written about Hambledon by someone. Uh, no, 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 John Nyron. You read that, and he was also a uh, like. There was a lot of oh, plagiarism. Well, that was the other thing. I mean, even Wisdom started with that. But you read the John Nyron book, and it does read a little bit like, and, and this is an Australian cricket culture thing, so I'm not sure if this translates to every cricket culture in the world, but like at the end of the year, you you know you have an uh, you have an award ceremony in, in in major Australian cricket clubs, and like people will give stories about the year, and suddenly everything will be you know oh, oh this guy was bowling the smoke and somehow you know little nugget he got up and he scored all these yeah. runs and all the stories are blown out, but everyone knows that right because everyone's in the room and they understand that the captain's just having a little bit of fun and you know the, the season went this way. But you read John Nyron's book and you're like, well that's that's retold as gospel over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know one of the most famous ones, of course, is the uh, the uh, the birth of overarm bowling by um, uh, by that f- by the family whose whose son writes about his mother inventing overarm bowling, despite mm-hmm. the fact that no one was wearing those dresses at the time that he claims in his story and everything else. Yeah. So there's a big part of cricket literature which you and I are reading, and we have to decipher whether the 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 writer was having a little bit of fun with it, like. This is something you'll you'll know. I think you know exactly what I mean. How often you read about someone having a smirk on their face when they were batting, and then you go to one of the the Oval or somewhere, and you're like, "Well, you're 120 meters away from that person," and it was before yeah. binoculars. Yeah, you probably yeah. didn't have binoculars, you know, because they would have been big, goofy things back in those days. How did you see the smirk? I can I can barely see the player. Oh, the Carter said that uh, that was higher truth. That was what he was supposed to like. That was his character. He was writing about his character. That was what he would should have done, whether he did it or not. And Cardis actually gave the license to the later generation uh, journalists to like blow up their re- reports by saying that the scoreboard is an ass. And you know, um, I do have a particular boxed item in the Elephant in the Stadium, which is called Keeping Up with the Kardashian. <laughs> You know, because uh, there also he had uh, done several mistakes in the 1950s with India and Pakistan tours so when he had written about them. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, cricket always has put uh, narrative over facts and figures. Yep. Narrative history, anecdotal history over facts and figures. And that I kind of, I, it is my hypothesis that ties right into the history as it is written by the um, Anglo-centric history, you know, Anglo-centric history, wherever it is written, because uh, Cardas's famous uh, words that uh, scoreboard is an ass. Why does it resonate so much? Because if you look at a scoreboard, you will find that uh, in history, in the Boer War, there were twenty-seven thousand women and children who died because of the British concentration camps. You'll find so many famines in the history of the empire. You'll find thirty-three million Bengalis died in the Bengal famine. It's much better to write that there were great institutions which were like erected by the British who, wherever they went, and Churchill won the war with two <laughs> fingers. You know, 
victory. So uh, the narrative always takes uh, precedence. It's much easier than to look at the facts and figures and find out what exactly happened. And cricket was kind of with uh, civilization, Christianity. Cricket was one of the pillars of evangelization, this uh, empire evangelization. And that same concept of uh, fabricating a sort of glorified uh, image of history, that actually uh, is there, you know, especially if you take the interwar period. That was one time when uh, it was not very certain that the empire could survive or not, and cricket was one of the pillars. And there, um, a lot of the writings of uh, Warner or Cardus, they actually glorified cricket beyond like recognizable shape, you know, with all the spirit of cricket coming into being, uh, coming into the picture with uh, in a big way, and all that nonsense that goes along with it. So, um, yes, yeah, so we all know that whatever the older writers wrote, like um, they heard, get them in singles, we yeah. get them in singles, saying to Rhodes, that never happened. Yeah, And when David Frith actually interviewed uh, Rhodes later on in his life, and Rhodes was old, and he said that we didn't use the word singles at that time, and uh, who knows, we might have got a two. <laughs> that was his answer. So definitely that didn't happen. But uh, these stories are always there. The stories are always there. So, and um, that actually dogs cricket even today, because you know, it is a very uh, elitist culture that whether you belong to certain clubs or not, and that's the way the history is written. So, um, we always go by primary source, which essentially means: Have you talked to these ninety-year-olds who had actually uh, been in that match? So they might not have anything new to say, but if you interview them and if you write down whatever they tell you, that may be totally different from what actually happened because they have forgotten or they have been giving after-dinner talks for so many years and their version have to has totally mm -hmm. changed. But that still plays yeah. a role. For well, example, I mean, just yeah. one of my favorite stories of all time in cricket is the David Boone drinking story. And why I love it so mm -hmm. much is it's so illogical. Right. And, and, and it also, it comes, the whole story is about David Boone having to drink this many beers to break out a record, but that record was only made that number because someone else had made another number and then they changed that number and then that number went up. So the original story was just uh, drank a lot of beers. Then it became drank an exact amount of beers so that you could beat it. Then they changed that around and then David Boone be beats that record. And I remember talking to, you know, I mean, Jeff Lawson and Dean Jones were not particularly happy when I made fun of it, but no one who's drinking that heavily can count how many beers they've had and no flight attendants yeah. in the world are sitting there counting out how many individual beers went to one particular person and whether he finished them or not or dropped a bunch or anything else on top of the fact he would have been in the toilet the entire trip, right? But it becomes part of the narrative yeah. of Australian cricket, that romanticizing and everything else. And once you do it with that, that's when you start to get to the point where you're just like, well, why would you make up something so small and then and push that? What else is going on? And I do think that, you know, you talk about the Gavaskar making the runs against, the, you know, the weaker attack. And, and, you know, we see all these sorts of narratives within cricket that fit, fit national identity or fit um, the empire or fit, you know, the English culture, uh, the English her history of the game. And sometimes it's like it, it takes the, the smallest little 
chip to be able to take it out of it. And you suddenly realize, no, I mean, you, you would know this more than anyone else, but the amateur st- side of things, right? When we did Death of a Gentleman, we went right around England doing screenings of the show and then doing Q&As. Uh, the Q&A, at every single Q&A, we were asked, don't you think that if cricket went back to the amateur days, a lot of these problems would go away, right? They had no idea what they meant by amateur cricket, right? They had no idea what they were even yeah, saying, but they had read the, the glory of the amateur game and they realized they thought it was something beautiful, not knowing that, as you and I know, a lot of the amateurs made more money than the professionals anyway, and it was a terrible system. Terrible system. Uh, there was a huge amount of difference between the classes. There was shamateurism. You know, they claimed more expenses than actually what the pro- professionals made together. Each of the amateurs made that that amount of money. So um, when WG's team was going to uh, Australia in 1992, uh, there were a group of uh, professionals standing there, and in their accounts, we find out that uh, WG had a wine allowance. Wine allowance, and uh, they said that he would drink enough to sink the ship. <laughs> so uh, these are uh, ridiculous. Like, um, and because of this amateur tradition, you know, the not only in cricket. In cricket, we see England playing with virtually ten and a half men f- for a long time in their history because the professional had to be the cap- uh, could not yeah. be the captain. So you had to come from the uh, right kind of family was, to lead the team. Yes to come to, from the right kind of family and also Hammond actually turned an amateur from a, being a professional so that he could become the captain and even when uh, Hutton became the captain and very successful captain who went to and won the ashes he was picked on so much by Swanton every move was criticized you know and so this sort of things are there such a, such a lot of uh, rather ordinary cricketers have played the game because they were mm. amateurs Percy Chapman uh, captaining the side when Hobbs, Sutcliffe, Hutton all are in the team. It's ridiculous. But this happened. And Australia benefited because they never had that system because uh, they were all um, like money-making ventures which uh, for which they traveled. And that was quite clearly yeah. known. I mean, they were the they were the first team, or well, the first test team to go on strike, right? Australia, a good number of their players don't go on the uh, the tri series, the ICC series, um, you know, for, yeah. because they weren't getting paid. I, I want to talk to you about something else. It was slightly different. It's related to the book a little bit as well. If Australian cricket isn't covered as well as English cricket, but if I can find a newspaper archive or go into a library or something. I can quite often find a fair bit of information about what I want, even if it's just one article, right? Mm-hmm. India is so different because there's so many different kinds, there's so many different languages, right? When you're an Indian yeah. historian, how hard is it to, you know, if it, I'm assuming the great majority of the writing was done in English and, and Hindi at times, but there would have been really good interviews with players that would have been done in other languages that you don't have access to or that weren't transcribed as uh, faithfully as you would have wanted or, uh, you know, anything like that. It's a whole different ball game. I would have thought that it's hard enough for you to find not everything from India is being digitized the same way that say Australian newspapers have all been digitized. And then you've got the language barrier. Is that a constant problem that you have when trying to tell India's cricket history? Yes, uh, that's a constant problem. And I will tell you, uh, I was just uh, chatting with, um, Mihir Bose recently. And when he wrote the history of Indian cricket, um, that was the first definitive history uh, that Indian cricket had because uh, previously it had not been written that way. And uh, he said that he often found more information 
sitting in England rather than going and looking in the archives in India. You know, it's about Indian cricket. He found more in England than in India. So uh, it is difficult to find uh, uh, information about Indian cricket in India. And some of, the, for example, this there was a tour book that was written in 1971. Um, and that is a decent tour book, but very small and just uh, some brief description of each of the matches it was useful to me but then when i look at the reports made by say john arlott or reports made by some other journalists uh, sitting in england and the reports made by the person who wrote the tour book 1971 tour book uh, there are a lot of discrepancies which is, tend to happen and uh, there are vernacular uh, newspapers as well which did their own reporting so i know hindi i know bengali i can look at them if i get the sources so uh, some bengali newspapers i i do have access to i can look up the sources but then uh, when it is a normal match report uh, this is a very frank admission when it's a normal match report I can see what happened, what was the score at a particular juncture. Those are quite accurate most often. But when it becomes a local hero, you know, a regional yeah. hero, then the entire narrative changes. And it is very difficult to really uh, take that on face value. You know? it's, uh, and it is, even now it is the case. Like you take anyone any player from the south and you look at the southern newspapers you take a player from the east and look at the eastern newspapers uh, there will be a bias and which is quite uh, understandable but it is uh, a bit frustrating for mm. the historian and what uh, i'll add one particular point now uh, it uh, might not have uh, come up otherwise um, when you look at the indian history uh, history of indian cricket or pakistani cricket or sri lankan cricket you see something that is, uh, I find it quite surprising, or not surprising, but not uh, really desirable, is that a lot of history of the subcontinent is written by Anglo-Australian writers, yeah. even today. A lot of uh, history is written by the Anglo-Australian writers, who not only face this uh, challenge of not having access to the stuff, but they also don't know mm -hmm. the languages. But that is the case. Uh, it is accepted that Anglo-Australian writers do write the history. Uh, Indian writers write about Indian cricket, Sri Lankan writers about Sri Lankan cricket, Pakistanis about Pakistani cricket, but you don't find the thing happening the other way. Pakistani writers writing about England or Indian writers oh, writing about Australia. I would say Australia. this is the first generation right. where you have Bharat um, and Usman, where you actually have that sort of starting, right? Like before that, there was individuals who might have crossed over but they were probably still seen as experts yeah. in their local area. So Barat being the Australian writer for Crick Buzz is quite a big deal. And obviously yeah. Usman being based in the UK and not really writing much about Pakistani cricket anymore, although he doesn't write that much at all. That's a big, that's a big movement coming through. And I remember when, when I broke through, yeah. I was probably the first person that wrote about global cricket. And I remember a lot of Asian cricket writers being not upset, but a little bit like, Oh, of course, it would. The first global writer would be an Australian, and it's true. I, it, it makes it made it easier for me. I mean, in my case, I was an Australian in England, so I already had that kind of double-edged advantage. You know, being able to see that both countries. I suppose David Frith is probably another good example of that. Maybe in Gideon Haig as well. Mm -hmm. You know, when you ha when you can see both sides, everyone looks a bit ridiculous to you. So you, you find the middle ground a little bit easier. But I, I do think that this is the first generation when we will actually see more writers of. That, that the other backgrounds come through. But the, the other thing that you mentioned is a lot of it is to do with 
the media and how it's made, right? So I, I, I don't know how you feel about this, but England has, what, seven or eight national newspapers that are all pretty big, right? And they're, they're, they're rich enough that they could send cricket writers all around the world, sometimes 10 cricket writers for one series and, and all that sort of stuff. Australia generally had a lot of newspapers, but probably only a handful of writers who would then write for all those newspapers in one in one go. We talked about Pakistan before, not being the, the Pakistan media wasn't strong enough to be able to send journalists overseas. A lot of it is to do with your media market as well, isn't it? Like, you know, that ability. And so there, there is a I, I think there's a fascination um, with some of these topics from people, probably, as you said, the Anglo Australian side of things they actually want to know more about I, I had this conversation today that's how i know this they want to know more about sri lankan cricket right but there's no, sri lankan book publishing doesn't have a lot of great books on sri lankan cricket that you can choose from because sri lankan book publishing hasn't been particularly you know it isn't like english book publishing whereas as you know they'll publish anything yeah. at all times mm -hmm. like a lot of it is yeah. market driven as well like it's a really weird subsection yeah. mm. the the other point is that if you if you take a say Pakistani or Sri Lankan or Indian writer writing about Australia, they won't struggle with the language ever because they all speak yeah, the language. Yeah. yeah, but it's not the same mm. the other way around. But books are written the, in the other direction, and that has a lot to do with how history has been written always. So um, that maybe it will be like uh, the fields will be leveled in this generation, as you say. And yes, it has a lot to do with the book publishing as well. England, in England, say, every week we find uh, new books being published about some minor counter cricketer who played two matches in 1931-32 and a retrospective about him, you know, with primary source interviews with the fourth cousin of the second granddaughter. There are seven, or something like seven that. books have been written about Yorkshire cricket while, we ha while you finished that sentence. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. so no, no, you're right. I, I do think, I do think that, that plays a big part. And the language thing is, I think that's really, really fascinating. But I also just think in general that with the internet, there is a democratization of who can write. So, you know, I, I might've been one of the first people through the door of that, uh, of that particular system. But behind me, there will be a bunch of people from, you know, I mean, Muhammad Issam might end up being one of the biggest cricket writers in the world. And he's from a cricket nation that is not as respected as much as his writing is. Right. You know, and, and, and you know, yeah. Fidel Fernando is another perfect example of that as well. You know, so there is actually this movement coming through. Ha even having said that, though, I was thinking about this today that it's it, as you've said, the was it 1952 series or 1951 series where it wasn't covered at all. That the, yeah, the West Indies yeah. series. Yeah. Indian cricket's never going to have that problem again. Because everything is covered, but now we now yeah. you, you know that the, the books on on this modern era will include you know the girlfriend's Instagram accounts, right? Like it'll be that detailed. But I do, I still don't think that cricket as a general concept outside of you know some of the bigger markets is particularly covered well at this point. I still think there's a lot of things that are left on the table. There's a lot of reporting. But maybe not as much, you know, deep diving and you know deeper stuff that you need for those kinds of, for the for that kind of history. Does that make sense? Like, you know, if, if, in thirty in thirty years time, you're probably going to know a lot more about Ian Bell than you are Shakib Al Hassan, right? And Ian Bell was a fine yeah. cricketer. We both would, you know, would would never argue against that. Shakib Al Hassan is an incredibly important cricketer, not just for Bangladesh but also as an all rounder. You know, you know the impact that he had and everything else, 
there, there still feels like to me, even though it's not like it was in the history of the game, there still does seem to be really huge missing um, chunks of of coverage of some of these teams. And I don't know how that ever gets overcome unless there's just so many people willing to write online that, you know, they, people get bored with writing about India or Pakistan or Australia or England. And that fil- those those writers filter out more and more to become uh, what, 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 what's it, uh, to become associate hipsters or small team hipsters or, or whatever that may be. But the stories are still out there and I still feel that there's not as much being covered on them as there should be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and historically also it has been the case, like, uh, if you take, um, say someone like Bob Wyatt, uh, quite a minor English cricket, minor in the sense he captain England, but it, he was not that great a cricketer. He has, I think, three biographies. Uh, <laughs> someone like <laughs> uh, someone like uh, Jack Crawford, who played just a few test matches as an off-spinner in the first decade of the 1900s. He has he had two bi- biographies published simultaneously. <laughs> but uh, someone like, say, an, a man with more than 6,800 runs in Test cricket, Dilip Sarkar. He doesn't have a yeah. biography yet. Vishwanath has just had a biography published and a ghosted biography. So um, so that sort of imbalance is there now with India becoming such a major feature, like uh, and they're ruling cricket from the financial point of view. Of course, we all know the numbers now, 38.1%, whatever. But... Uh, um, Indian cricketers will definitely have uh, things written about them. Good stuff or not, that's a different <laughs> matter altogether. But uh, but then, uh, as you said, Bangladeshi or, um, say, Shakib Alassan or Rashid Khan, people like them, whether they will really have uh, their lives documented in a proper way, it's a difficult question. I mean, uh, there have been some... Uh, influential British journalists or Australian journalists who have gone in and uh, written biographies of some minor, uh, some cricketers from minor countries, you know, so uh, in the past, you know, it has always been a personal drive which has made them, which have made them do that. And I think uh, Shakib's biography or Rashid Khan, it will also have to be something like that, a personal drive rather than uh, something coming out of the system. Because they are... I think you're right. So I I was talking to a publisher recently and I said, I think the book that needs to be written is Owen Morgan because it tells the story of Irish cricket, but also the rise Mm -hmm. of, you know, New England, right? And, you know, breaking them free of what they were doing and even... Owen Morgan isn't directly responsible for baseball, but because of what Owen Morgan did, baseball was able to be used as a thing. So everywhere you look around English cricket, but you could just see the publisher go, yeah, but it's, it's still an Irish cricketer, even though he won a World Cup for oh, England, shit. right? Now that's, you compare that to Shakib or, or Rashid Khan, they're going to be further down. And I've had these conversations before. I've had very fine international cricketers um, come to me and, and ask to, you know, write books and, I, and you go to the publishers or the agents and there's that sort of look of, wow, we're not going to sell that many copies. And it's also, it's the wrong way of looking at it anyway, because realistically, if the book's good and it works, it should be very sellable, but that's obviously not how book publishers work. But it, it does feel yeah. to me that there, there is still that out there. But, you know, then there is the, the other part of this is what is the future of cricket book writing? Because 
I think in England, which is probably still its best market, that that not only is the demographic who buys books quite old, but as you said before, the demographic who writes books is often quite old. And there's sort of this, there's there, there are a lot of books that are, are written that are sold to between five and 10,000 um, people and they're seen as a success and that writer gets another book um, on the back of that, right? But there are very few breakthrough cricket books, you know, uh, you know, so your book has won an award, Jeff Lemon's written books that have won awards, you know, lots of my friends have books with awards. There aren't many books though that have gone from that level or selling five to 10,000 copies to actually become important. And, and I don't know if that's because of the flooding of the market or because they keep they they don't know how to advertise these books. They don't know how to push these books and market these books beyond because, you know, your your book is a perfect example of, yeah, it's about cricket, but it's about India, right? And it's about empire. Um, and it's about, you know, everything sort of coming together. And as you said, Bangladesh and Pakistan and even the West Indies are involved. It's a cultural book, right? And the best cricket books are yeah. cultural books, even if they are about facts and figures and the and the score and the scoreboard you know, or not being an ass or not. Right. And, and I, I feel that too often that they are, these aren't sold as great stories, but they are sold as cricket books, which is a completely different thing. And if you're selling everything as a cricket book, well, then it has to be a book about a famous person. Right. Cause why else would you yes, read it? Whereas sir. that's not really where the better writing quite often is, you know, some of these great books are not really about the bigger stories. So it does, I, I, I you've written a lot, you know, a, a lot of books of recent time. And I, I sort of wonder where you think that the next jump is do, do Indians and start reading more books or is it a, a Kindle led future or is it a, or is it think people like me writing a book and then using it to uh, make podcasts out of? Yeah, that's a very uh, difficult question to answer. Difficult in the sense it is quite painful to answer because uh, Indian, uh, there's a huge population and uh, most of them like to curl up in bed with a good phone, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so uh, they're used to reading tweets and I don't blame them. That's uh, technology and that's the way the world is going now. Um, they will probably, like, I'm not generalizing the Indians, but most of the cricket crowd, they will generally read, uh, not read, but they will pose with books. Maybe if, if it is about a superstar yeah. cricketer, they'll buy it. Um, a lot of the book launches are very important. In the launch, there are about uh, 50 important guests, all of whom are given a free copy and none of them read the books. So <laughs> that that is also something that happens. None of the free copies will be read, but uh, there are pictures with those books. So uh, book publishing and uh, marketing and actually reading them, these are completely different, you know. And uh, as you said, cricket books, um, that has a particular connotation with it. We like to believe cricket produces the cream of uh, sports literature, which I think is uh, one of the myths of cricket, <laughs> because cr by cream, yes, rich and thick, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I don't think uh, it is the cream. There are lots of sports which produce much better literature. Uh, the ones who say cricket produces the best literature, they don't read any book, rather, let alone cricket. But uh, Cricket books are not taken seriously by the publishing industry. You know, uh, if you look at the cricket books being reviewed by national daily papers, very few will be actually reviewed. Very few are actually reviewed in the papers. Um, if it is cricket, they don't review. If it is uh, if it is literature or if it is some nonfiction, which is of a more serious topic, then they review, which again 
is a bummer because, as you said, the best cricket books are about society, about the entire picture rather than just being about cricket. So uh, there is a distinct gap there. And they are reviewed in the uh, traditional uh, cricket journals and uh, cricket magazines. And there, again, the reviewers are not the youngest people. And um, they have a particular templatized approach to how a cricket book should be written. And they become very, um, like, they cannot quite figure out if a cricket book has been written the other in a yeah. different way. You know, so some of the examples, like Creconomics, I guess you have gone yeah. through that. Creconomics, the book. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's a very good book. I mean, that's, that's the way numbers should be used and the actual, what is happening in cricket can be interpreted through numbers. Yeah. I doubt how many people actually read and understood it, you know, in the traditional places where cricket books are read and reviewed. Uh, similarly, I mean, uh, Cricket 2.0 was another very good book. Uh, there are, these sort of books need to be more in the market, which actually is a fact-based, figure-based, and uh, does proper um, analysis of cricket. And um, there is a lot of uh, scope of uh, rewriting and correcting the history that has been that has been written that has gone down as history, which is totally erroneous. So, um, but again, how many people will read it? That's a that's a very good question, and it has uh, it doesn't have a very good answer, you know, because. Yes, uh, if you make a podcast about a book, maybe more people will listen to that podcast rather than actually going and reading That's the not book. the case here, though, where everyone who's listened to this podcast will buy two copies, one for themselves and um, one for you know their nephew or niece um, so that they have a copy of it. So you'll be okay. But no, it, look, it's a really interesting thing going uh, forward. I'll tell you, my favorite story about cricket books was when I was in Pune, in 2016 or 2017 uh, when Australia were playing India whenever that tour was on and I happened to be staying at a hotel where the hotel next door had a sports literature festival and Gideon was speaking there mm -hmm. and Sunil Gavaskar was speaking and I, uh, they asked me to come down and, and I took their free food as I often do and, and, and milled around and did nothing at all really and then they got me a nice seat in the front row so the camera could pan to me while there was a speech on and one of the, one of the speakers was um, Verinda Sewag talking about his Twitter account and I thought, you've got a sports literature award uh, at festival. You, it's all about sports writing. And you have Verinda Sewag talking about his Twitter account, which he does not write. Um, it does tell yeah. you a little bit about the celebrity culture of cricket books. And, and also, why should they be taken seriously in, if, that's, if, if, if that's what happens uh, with them? Anyway, thank you very much. Uh, Elephant in the Stadium uh is available uh where all good books are available and it's uh you'll be selling it out the back of your car if you have to uh so thank you very much for coming on the podcast thank you thank you great to be here thank you for listening there is more information on my guests in the show notes please support them where you can but also support us if you can't help out on patreon every single review share or word of mouth suggestion to your friend helps us However, this podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. We also have a great support team from 42, with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia, and Meda Akam producing some of the shows, and Makanda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. Our theme tune is by the Red Crickets. 
Social Podcast Network.